This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host, Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Noemi Eladad, who is Associate Professor of Biomedical Informatics and affiliated with Computer Science and the Data Science Institute at Columbia University. She focuses on how clinicians, patients, health researchers can all benefit from observational clinical data. So that's data like electronic health records and patient-generated data. So for example, from mobile health apps. We'll be focusing specifically on her research project, Citizen Endo, which she launched in 2016. And Citizen Endo aims to engage patients as active research participants. So the idea is to use patient-generated health data to gain a more comprehensive description of endometriosis, and then to help patients make sense of the data that they generate. Wow, I'm excited for our conversation. Let's start by talking a little bit about endometriosis and uh, maybe start by talking about how many people it affects. So endometriosis is when tissue similar to the tissue that normally lines the inside of the uterus grows outside of it. And, and some of the most common symptoms are infertility, pain during sex and pelvic pain, especially during menstruation. The severity of pain can vary over time and between patients, but for many women, it can be absolutely debilitating. And it's estimated that it affects 10% of women of reproductive age. That's like 200 million women globally. That's a huge number. And my understanding is that despite it having such a huge effect on so many women's lives, it still doesn't receive much attention. Yeah, unfortunately, that's right. So to start on the research side, in 2018, endometriosis received only $7 million in funding from the NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health. And while funding has increased quite a bit since then, it's still near the bottom of the agency's research areas. Hmm. And what does the picture look like on the clinical side? So to paint a broad picture, a survey done back in 2013 found that half of general healthcare practitioners could not name three of the main symptoms of endometriosis. So nearly two thirds did not feel comfortable in the diagnosis and follow-up of women presenting with endometriosis. And along with the other effects of societal normalization of women's pain and stigma around menstrual issues, this ignorance has caused there to be an average of seven years between the onset of symptoms and diagnosis. Wow. Seven years is an extremely long time to not even know that what you're experiencing is so common. Yeah. And is there a cure? Currently, no. Endometriosis can sometimes be managed through hormone therapy and surgery, but that's really it. For, for some women, symptoms persist even after the most extreme form of surgery, which is the removal of the uterus and ovaries. Dr. Eladad will talk about how our lack of knowledge about the disease has really hampered our ability to understand how effective these treatments really are and for who. Okay. So to summarize here, 
Endometriosis occurs when tissue that normally grows inside the uterus grows outside of it and often causes infertility and severe pain. And even though it affects an estimated 200 million women, very little is understood about it and there's no known cure. Yeah, it, it can be a pretty bleak picture. And since one of the major barriers to better understanding and treating the disease has been a lack of patient data, that's where Dr. Eladad and Citizen Endo come in. Because Citizen Endo uses patient self-track data to help both researchers and patients better understand things like the relationships between different symptoms and patterns in disease progression. Cool. And what does self-track data mean here? In this case, it's an app in which patients can log their symptoms and, and how those symptoms are affecting their quality of life. That makes sense. I imagine that it's really difficult to convince patients to freely share data that can be so personal and stigmatized, and also as a researcher to determine what's a real signal and what's due to biases that come from users' voluntary engagement with an app. Yeah, exactly. And, and much of our conversation with Dr. Eladad will focus on how she and her group have approached those challenges. One paper from Citizen Endo shows how self-track data can augment EHR data. And EHR data is input by a physician during a patient visit. Now, this has limitations for both clinical care and research because it's only recorded during patient visits and so not well-suited to track fluctuating disease progression over time. Yeah, and on, on top of that, there can be significant variability between physicians logging of diagnostic codes, especially those that won't lead to testing, treatment, referral, and, and putting too much burden on a physician's recording has helped lead to quite a bit of burnout. Right. We covered some of the story behind EHRs and their unintended consequences for physicians last episode with Dr. Kahani. Yeah. It, it's really, really helpful to understand how this whole ecosystem of medical data fits together. So like one way that self-track data can help is by providing a more granular picture of the disease progression over time and identifying symptoms that may be underrecorded by physicians. So for example, they showed that variation in a single patient's pain symptoms over time was almost as much as the variation between different patients. And they also found that many of the diagnoses were only found in patient self-report and not in EHRs at all. Wow. The idea here is really that we can rely on patients to fill in some of the gaps in the data that we know are missing from clinicians. What are some other examples of how Citizen Endo has used the data? The group also showed how clinically relevant endometriosis phenotypes, which are basically just a set of observable characteristics, how those phenotypes can be identified. So to give some context, even though several stages of the disease have been proposed, they don't do a good job of explaining the diversity of symptoms or their severity or their progression. And so identifying subtypes could help fill in this picture and provide earlier diagnosis and better treatment strategies. Yeah. So this sounds like an area where some unsupervised machine learning techniques could play a role. Yeah. And the use of these techniques is one thing that we'll cover with Dr. Eladad today, as well as a lot of the philosophy behind Citizen Endo and, and what it really means to make patients 
active partners in the project. We'll be focusing on some of the questions that arise from trying to use patient data empathetically and effectively, especially in such a sensitive context. And we'll be focusing not just on endometriosis, but on how some of these same approaches are being used to better study other poorly understood relationships, for example, between hormones and menstrual cycles. So happy to have you with us today, Noemi. Happy to be here. I want to start by asking about a research project you launched called Citizen Endo in 2016 at Columbia. Could you share a little bit with us about this project? Sure. So the project is really about using human-centered AI and citizen science principles to advance science about a particular disease, in, in our case, endometriosis. And so hence the name, you know, citizen for citizen science and endo for endometriosis. And it's kind of an umbrella project that we created where the idea was that there's a tremendous lack of data to study this disease. There's some misunderstanding about the disease itself. And it felt when we reviewed a lot of the work that exists in research that there was this misrepresentation of the disease itself from a phenotypic standpoint. Uh, and without phenotypic descriptions, it was hard to then get at mechanistic level understanding of the disease. And so this disconnect kind of brought in questions about what type of data could we bring in uh, that don't exist currently and are definitely not shared with the scientific community about endometriosis. And because it's a endometriosis is a women's health condition primarily that is heavily misunderstood, has heavy stigma around it because it relates to menstruation, infertility, pain, which is something that has a lot of stigma around it, both in discussing it with clinicians, but also in just acknowledgement from the healthcare body towards their patient, it felt tremendously important to partner with patients from the beginning rather than try to find a data set that exists and not have the patients part of it. And so it opened up a lot of really interesting research questions, but primarily it was about this partnership with patients to try to understand better the disease. I think of endometriosis as being notorious for one of those diseases that goes underdiagnosed and under-resourced. And it feels like that's often the case for illnesses that are sort of more prevalent in women or specific to women, like PCOS is another one that comes to mind. And, and I'm embarrassed to even admit this, but I feel like I first learned about endometriosis from Lena Dunham posting a lot about her experience and sort of because she was so open about it. And, I'm, and maybe we can just start with why have we been so historically poor at tracking endometriosis? I'm hoping you can flesh that out a little bit more. No, it, it's a great question. I kind of want to preface this by saying that we think we know a lot about many diseases, and I don't think that's entirely true. Mm. I think this idea of having patients be part of any scientific endeavor about disease is not a bad idea. Because even in conditions that we think we understand, there's still a lot of lived experiences and heterogeneity in symptoms that ultimately will bring new insight about the disease if we collect them the right way. So, I, you know, that's kind of like the prior on all diseases that I would say. And if you think about just, you know, through history of medical science, like how diseases are conceived of, like even defined to start with and then later treated 
it's really like an iterative process of going from like a single use case to many people to, oh, there's a pattern here and here are different maybe subtypes and then from there kind of reiterating. So it's not completely original to medical science to say we're going to ask patients about what's going on with their disease. But you're totally right that like endometriosis is a perfect example of what is called an enigmatic condition when in fact I'm not sure it's enigmatic because researchers have spent everything they could and could not understand the disease. It's more like well, there's no data, there's no account from patients, and there's a lot of reluctance from the general population, but also like, you know, funding agencies, etc., to even invest in understanding better the disease. Why is it happening? Women's health conditions are particularly misunderstood. There's a history of uh, normalization of pain. And so I think that a lot of what we call invisible diseases and invisible conditions are often stigmatized in other type of conditions, uh, which now are better understood. But, you know, even autoimmune conditions have a very long lag to diagnosis, in part because the symptoms of the diseases are so nebulous and vague. There's no lab measurement for them or uh, radiology to look up and some very specific phenotypic characteristics. There could be some, you know, there might be a diagnostic way of finding a biomarker for, say, endometriosis or PCOS. Uh, we're not there yet, for sure. I want to ask, before we get into the science, to get a definition from you of what endometriosis is. Yeah, the <laughs> it's I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because it's actually hard to define it even in a few words. <laughs> That's how little we know about the disease. Wow. Um, the way it is currently defined is that there is tissue that typically grows inside the uterus. It's called the endometrium. And that's a normal physiological thing. That's actually what constitute periods when someone menstruates uh, and that gets shed from the uterus. In the case of endometriosis, there is tissue that looks like the endometrium that grows in lesions outside of the uterus and sometimes inside the walls of the uterus itself. And these lesions can be both cysts, and so, you know, like little cysts that attach themselves to organs, ovaries, for example, or appendix, but they can also be uh, what we call deeply infiltrated lesions where it kind of grows within the tissues in the abdominal cavity and other organs. There's a lot of controversy as to why the disease exists. There's been a lot of theories about it, and I don't think we have yet enough evidence as to explain the etiology of the disease. When we look at which organs are typically affected by endometriosis, it's very systemic. It can affect the GI system, diaphragm, liver, lungs sometimes, uh, rectum, ovaries, uh, uterus itself, etc. So it's part of the difficulty, I think, is that it has this systemic aspect to it and this heterogeneity from one patient to the next that makes it difficult to say, you know, it's a disease of the reproductive system or it's a disease that is hormonally dependent or an autoimmune disease. We don't really know. And so you run Citizen Endo and you just mentioned earlier that it's a, an example of citizen science. So can you maybe walk us through what citizen science looks like as opposed to non-citizen science? Sure. And you know, there's many ways in which these kind of principles of citizen science are 
thought about outside of health and within health research, uh, you know, participatory research and community-based participatory research is another way to think about it. Those are overlapping frameworks, if you want. Citizen science as its core is this idea that citizens, so non-scientists, have value in bringing in new types of data. The original example of citizen science was in natural science and, for example, providing pictures of birds. And so different citizens throughout the world have access to seeing different birds that scientists would have to travel from one place to the other. And, you know, here I am with my camera in Central Park, for example, in New York City, and I can take a picture of a beautiful bird. I'm trying to find a name, but I don't have one. Uh, so, So that's one aspect is that citizens can provide new data but also that citizens themselves can come up with new research questions and can participate in answering these research questions. So a full partnership uh, with researcher. And from that idea came kind of principles of how would one conduct citizen science research. One of the big one is this idea of return of results, consulting with citizens throughout the research design process, et cetera. You know, it felt like for disease where patients feel they have no voice, it fit perfectly. I think people underestimate how difficult it is to launch and run a study. Yes, you're right. I was a little naive when we started, you know, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. And we had to kind of like adapt actually to how hard it was going to be. I think, you know, my background is in observational data sets and natural language processing, and I'm not the one creating the corpus that I'm going to analyze. I might add some annotations to it, but that's about how much I would do. Uh, I was dealing with electronic health records. I continue to deal with it, but you know, there was never this idea of like, what would it mean? How do we collect the data? Like what's the instrument to collect the data? What questions do we ask? And knowing, you know, all what that we know about how political data is and how meaningful every question is going to be for the insights that we're going to derive from the data. Uh, And so, you know, having that pressure of thinking like we can't screw this up, basically, (laughs) we have one shot at asking patients for their experience of disease, but how is it going to be, you know, is it going to be scientifically meaningful? Is it going to be unbiased? Uh, Are we going to introduce new biases when we collect the data in a certain way versus another? Etc. Etc. Were really like questions we struggle with, and then another giant question we struggle with was how do we engage patients into talking about something that's very intimate to them and their whole lives they've been trying to deal with it but have a very conflicted relationship with. <laughs> Is it going to increase their level of distress even to self-track their disease? At the beginning, we had a lot of pushback from fellow endometriosis researchers who told us you don't want to ask patients to think about how much pain they're in because it's going to, you know, some it will be very gratifying and for others it will be too much to think about. So this engagement piece became a, a big deal. And then the last part was that this is valid for many conditions where there's not a lot of scientific knowledge about patients have trust issues with healthcare providers and with scientists. In the case of endometriosis, there's a very difficult relationship with pharmaceutical companies, for example, and treatments that patients feel are not curing them, but are kind of like band-aids with a lot of side effects. And they feel like they're being pushed on treatments they don't want. And so 
some of the early questions we had to deal with were how do we gain trust of patients? That meant, for example, not getting funding from pharmaceutical company, but that also meant how do we present ourselves as researchers not coming from a mountain and asking the populace for, for their advice, but really being partners. And so in my case, it became obvious that I had, for example, to make public the fact that I myself had endometriosis and I was myself a patient who wanted to be an active partner in answering these questions. And I think, you know, I was lucky in a way because my fellow patients were, I think, more trustful about my intentions. The last piece is something that I was thinking a lot about because if citizen science is the future for a lot of the AI health exploration that we're going to do, then how do you incentivize people to sign up for research projects like this? Do you end up just getting patients who suffer from whatever disease you're exploring? And in that respect, you're, you're already biased. You know, how do you encourage people to sign up for research that requires giving so much personal data when we're told every day by the news that we are giving away too much of our data all the time through all of our different devices that we're on? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's a bit of a disconnect here. We can see already in the in the community, right? Like there's different approaches. Like I'm thinking, first of all, of like NIH's in initiative on all of us, which is basically saying, I'm looking for the most diverse population that I can get my hands on. Please contribute to this. So it's not targeting one disease uh, at a time or one um, demographics at a time, but I'm really interested in, on the contrary, the diversity of experiences and providing a lot of guarantees to potential participants in terms of consent and return of results is a big principle for all of us. So all of these things are really like these building blocks about building trust with the participants. Obviously there's like regulatory reasons you obtain consent, but I think it's really about building trust and it's an engagement technique. We've seen a lot of obviously Apple research kit studies have been a lot of success through this kind of recruitment of like going to maybe or partnering with advocacy groups or foundations of specific diseases and saying, you know, trust us again, we'll work on this together, give us some data and we'll have some results about the disease. There's this big idea that there's a, some health literacy level that's uh, acceptable and it's not even a health literacy level, it's an AI literacy level that we're asking a lot of participants to have when in fact we as researchers are not 100% sure of what, you know, what are the consequences of having this data. And there will be unintended consequences for sure. We don't know what they are. And so that uncertainty mm. about the fact that we're going to be learning models about this data and we might take this data and mash them with other data sets and learn other things. It's a little difficult to explain this in uh, simple terms and especially in terms that that kind of review all potential risks, because I don't think we know what they are. So it's definitely a limitation. Could you maybe talk about one of these studies or apps that you've developed that allow patients to report data and maybe talk about what kinds of data they're reporting and on what frequency? Sure. I'll tell you about Fando, which is, I think, like the oldest studies that we uh, ran into the Citizen Endo project. So Fando is a self-tracking app. It's a research app. There's a consent into the app. And it kind of follows, actually, the principle of a research kit, 
originally as like, you know, a way, a facilitating way of like getting consent within an app and getting like a way of asking questions on a daily fashion, maybe to participants and collecting this data. We have about 15,000 participants. In our case, we actually spent a lot of time designing the app with the patients who many, in many ways, like we did natural language processing of online communities of endometriosis patients to kind of have a, a catalog of uh, symptoms and treatments. Uh, we did focus groups, we did interviews, and then we went to providers and did focus groups and interviews with providers to get a sense again of like, how would you ask questions about a disease where we don't know what <laughs> what the symptoms are right. in advance? There is a little of a catch-22 there. And then finally, we did kind of an automated review of the endometriosis research on, on PubMed, which is very doable because there's not that many papers about endometriosis. <laughs> so, so we ended up with an app. And one of the things that we had heard from patients was a very strong, you know, I'm very happy to give data, but I want to see what I'm tracking because I need to understand my own patterns, et cetera. And so we ended up customizing the app heavily so that there could be retroactive tracking and there would there was a lot of review of what you've been tracking. So out of these 15,000 people, they're all over the world. Primarily, it's an English uh, on the app. If we get funding for multilingual, we would love to, but we don't have it yet. And so obviously it's very popular in the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, but we have about 70 countries represented basically. So it's very rewarding to us. We now do less recruitment and the recruitment happens mostly from advocacy groups and support groups that uh, learn about the project and talk about it mm. during their support groups and through clinicians who, um, you know, encourage their patients to use a self-tracking so that they can review data together. It's kind of nice because it kind of took it a life on its own now in terms of recruitment. And we were able to now spend time actually analyzing the data and trying to understand the data. So we've done two types of analysis on it. The first one was really like these big worries that we had about engagement and are there any biases in, um, right. in help? You know, like Adrian, you, you mentioned, for example, like are only sick people gonna use this app? Who are the patients? So we made sure to have patients also fill out at baseline a lot of like standardized surveys that we use as kind of gold standard to validate or self-tracking data questions. And we were able to see that we have in, in fact a very heterogeneous population in terms of health status, we also have people who do not have a diagnosis. That's one of the research gaps of the disease is that there are people who are convinced they have it and are in the process of getting the diagnosis, but don't have it yet. And so we also have a lot of these patients in our data set. So depending on the type of analysis we do, we only look at people who have gotten an official diagnosis versus the whole population. The other big type of analysis we've done is doing unsupervised learning and basically clustering to identify are there different subgroups of patients. And so the, the leading questions there is that endometriosis is approximated to be 10% of women in reproductive age. And we know that there's no, you know, especially with this type of high prevalence, it has to be a heterogeneous condition. So there have been stages proposed in the literature and subgroups proposed 
they do not correspond to the patient experience in terms of pain or GI symptoms or other type of symptoms. And so we did a mixed membership modeling, basically very quote unquote simple approaches to try to see what type of patients these different participants represent. And also, could we interpret, you know, these clusters of symptoms and what would they mean if we wanted to say that's more of this group versus that other group? Once we had this, we were able to go back and, again, test against some of our worries with respect to biases. Are we clustering based on how much people are tracking? Are we just, you know, we clustering based on how involved and engaged they are with the app? And we found that it wasn't the case. It was actually potentially true physiological different subgroups. I'm curious when it comes to converting this knowledge findings that, you know, this isn't just one disease, this has many different manifestations for patients. How does that now change management? Is that sort of a long-term vision that this would change guidelines, which would then inform different therapies? Or is there also a shorter-term vision of this having an impact on the users of these apps? Yeah, I think we see it in two ways. In the short-term there is some validation to the users that comes back about saying, you know, what you're experiencing is not normal as a patient. It's a big question that patients come back to, which is like, I, I'm experiencing this symptom. I know I have endometriosis, but is this part of the disease or is it something else? And so just knowing that your signature pattern of symptoms is part of one group versus another is an immediate validation for patients. Long-term, the idea is that it would impact diagnoses because now we have a clinical representation like the type of symptoms that we're recording are things that clinicians can ask about to patients. And so it would impact diagnosis patterns. And the other one, which I think is we don't have the right data yet for, would be what type of treatments make sense for what type of cluster and in conjunction with that question, you know, what other type of data do we want to know to collect that can augment and help us understand even better what these clusters are? Who has access to this data? Is it publicly available or is it just your research lab that has access to it? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, we have not made it publicly available yet. One of the issues with continually recruiting is you're like, we can get more participants before we, we release it. So at some point we're going to stop and release yeah. it. But we kind of decided to wait a little bit and potentially go to 20,000 in part because of how we looked at like the kind of questions that we can answer with the data. And some that we found out recently is that you know, we, we found like these different clusters of people in terms of engagement this time, and that the ones who are heavily engaged with the data are wonderful citizen scientists, but are also using the, the app from what we can see from our analyses as a self-management tool. And so that got us started in a whole other type of question, which has to do with like N of one kind of uh, recommendations of self-management and how could we use reinforcement learning to identify the right prescriptions for these people, et cetera. And so now we're thinking like, how much of those participants do we have and how many interactions do we want to have from these participants? But that's a detour in my answer. The primary thing I should say about the data set is that whoever asks us about the data, we provide a de-identified version of. So it's not publicly available, but we make it available to whoever asks. 
and has an IRB that they can show us. And just so I understand how this works, is the idea then that before you publicly release it, you sort of need to just collect all the data you need and then release it? Like it could just be an ongoing study where you're sort of releasing it piecemeal over time as you get more and more participants? Yeah, I think we could do it, absolutely. I think we're still very traditional in our way of thinking about the data. And so we kind of like set ourselves like this very arbitrary like set of people that we want to have and a number of interactions we want to have. And it's pretty high, you know, originally when we launched it, I was like, we'll get maybe a thousand participants. Uh, and then it got to 5,000 very quickly. And then it was like, maybe we get 10,000. And, you know, so oh. we have to fight that tendency of being like, oh, maybe we can get more and just be more open in our distribution for sure. I want to ask about another one of the projects you've worked on, on characterization of menstrual patterns. Could you talk a little bit about some of the myths in this space and what the data showed? So that actually came like this type of question, characterizing the menstrual cycle for people who menstruate, not only people who are have a menstrually related disorder, came from actually research on endometriosis where we originally were like, let's get controls and let's find, you know, differences in maybe menstrual cycle. And the more we read about the literature on menstrual cycle, the more we realized, oh, we actually also don't know much about the menstrual cycle. And so it got us started into this whole other wonderful area of research. And so we tackled it from two types of data. One is basically at the hormonal level. So the menstrual cycle is basically a dynamic process through time where reproductive hormones are going up and going down in tandem. And what we see clinically is, you know, a cycle that is understood to be 28 days and some period of that time, which is a period where someone shed menstrual effects. And so we looked at some examples of mathematical models of these dynamics that had been proposed in the literature in the 80s by people who do like biomath, basically. And those were all kind of, I want to say theoretical models in the sense that they had been tested and fit on very small amount of data from healthy people, about 40 women. So it's very, very small. But nevertheless, the models themselves, you know, they had lots of parameters and lots of equation, like 14 ODEs and lots of parameters. And so they're heavily flexible and can be doing many things. So one type of research we've done is kind of a practical question. If we want to build a data set of actual hormonal samples now at scale and have a big representation of the population, it's very expensive to get daily reproductive hormone measurements. What's the minimal budget that we need to do the sampling? And so in other words, what's the minimal budget of sampling so that you can reconstruct the curves of different reproductive hormones? with knowledge or maybe without knowledge, we don't know yet, of the mathematical models. So that's been one type of research and it's ongoing. We're working on figuring out how to collect these things in a budget-friendly fashion, etc. I imagine that, that you're asking participants to also track their periods and, and so it's a lot of manual data collection, is that right? Yeah, you know, most of these models are only thinking in terms of like measures and levels of hormones, but now we have this additional opportunity to also ask people to bring in their 
period cycle information, but also maybe symptoms that they have throughout their cycle, etc. So menstrual tracker plus hormone level type of uh, data set is what we're after. In fact, we're even more interested in other types of data like microbiome in the gut and in the vagina and, and what are the impact of these things throughout the cycle, which we know are changing, but we don't really understand how. And all of these are like things we couldn't do before, obviously, but are getting closer to doing this in a way that is feasible with our budget. <laughs> it's still expensive, but but I think coupled with these models to reconstruct things, uh, and if we have enough trust in them, we can really make a dent at having a comprehensive view of these things. On the side, because we are going into all these questions of like self-tracking menstrual trackers, we also started looking into partnering with existing menstrual trackers who are very successful. Menstrual tracking is one of the most popular type of tracking on app stores with a tracker we, we work with, Clue. They have 12 million users throughout the world and uh, median number of cycles in this particular cohort we're looking at is 11 cycles. It's a wonderful opportunity because now we have this longitudinal data to look at. So I have always tried to track my period. I feel like my gynecologist has asked me to do this ad nauseum and I always mess it up. It's probably the easiest yeah. thing to track. It takes about 15 seconds. And yet I always yet, forget, I always, <laughs> I like, it's like Saturday and I'm like, oh, I forgot like Wednesday. And like, I just, I never remember. And so I'm kind of curious, like whenever you have user reported data, it's bound to be very messy. So how do you, Absolutely. as researchers, yeah, how no, do you deal with such noisy data? You're totally right. And I relate to it, even on the app that I created, my own app on Fando, <laughs> and I'm a patient and I still forget to track. So I completely relate to what you're saying. First of all, again, I want to preface by like, even in other data, like all the healthcare data that we have access to, there are similar biases that are going to come in. And so it felt like very natural. Like if you work on electronic health record data, like for example, you get a 2 a.m. glucose test. That's a very particular and weird data type because who would, who would need to take a glucose test at 2 a.m. is someone who's sick. And so there's a weird bias around that. So the question was like, when you move to self-tracking data, what are the biases? And you're correct, like the forgetting to track is a huge bias. And the whole uh, work we've been doing on characterizing and, and more recently on predicting the next period date has been about how do we detangle what we think is the tracking behavior from what we think is a physiological behavior in our modeling. There's several reasons to wanting to model these two things explicitly. Even though we have high engagement with this type of apps, we can't afford to remove all the imperfect trackers. It's not a thing we should do. We cannot yeah. tell to a user as we're building, say, a prediction model, we can't tell, sorry, I can't tell you because you forgot to track. And we need better models. We need more people. So that's one aspect. But there's another aspect which I like, which is a type of theme that I, is really close to my heart in informatics, which is like this... Uh, human-centered approach to these models and you know we can't continue with these engagement techniques of sending daily notifications to users and telling them did you get your periods did you get your period that's going to be you know alert fatigue is a thing for everyone and so if we model explicitly you know how likely are you to have forgotten to track your cycle 
then mm. we can start thinking more in terms of design options for having smart alerts that say, you know, we really think that you're on day 32 of your cycle and your history shows that this is not a typical length. Maybe it's worth it to send a notification then. Like Atriel, get with it, open up your app and just log exactly. this. Yeah. <laughs> but we really trust that you should right now, uh, as opposed to like on day one of your cycle asking you again, you know, did you forget to track? Could you give a couple of examples of uh, what kind of a statistical or machine learning tool you're using on these data that are generated? Yeah, it might be a bias of, of our lab, I'll, I'll say this, but because we're looking for explicitly modeling different latent variables and we are interested in having heavily interpretable models and models that can deal with a lot of missing data, etc., We've been pushing very hard for probabilistic generative models and more recently, like more like deep versions of those, but at the base of it, like very probabilistic in nature. Sometimes it, it feels funny because we're, we're not going against the grain. I shouldn't say that. All of our baselines are deep learning in nature and et cetera, but we spend a lot of time on like writing equations of inference. You know, there's a lot of like hand coding of, of all of these models that happen and it's not trivial at all. But I think the added value of this is that we really are able to completely model the world according to what we think the domain is telling us. So we really like where there's this iteration between building the model together with domain experts, inferring these latent variables and then having tasks and performance metrics to critique the model and going back and forth around them. So that's kind of like the principles we've been following. I'd like to get a sense from you on where you'd like to see our knowledge of endometriosis or of menstrual cycle patterns, let's say in the next three to five years. I found that like all of these things are so interconnected. It's hard to say, I want science of the disease to advance without thinking about the biases in, in general of healthcare for women and some of the inequities in access to diagnosis and treatment. And so we're trying to have a breadth first approach basically of like menstrual cycle. Here's a little bit of how AI could help and hopefully inspire others to join this type of research. Here's a little bit of endo. And more recently, we've been looking across all conditions that we can get our hands on in a claims data set or an electronic health records, what are the differences in time to diagnosis or the differences in predictions for disease occurrence across genders. So they're all, they all seem like slightly disconnected, but they kind of make sense to me because they're all about like the different reasons why uh, we can't advance science in a disease like endometriosis. So for me, I mean, not to advertise this disease in particular, but I think there's many other conditions like that where we don't know that much about. And we're in an amazing position today where we can start having cheaper biological understanding and collection. We have tools like apps where we can go and ask directly patients what's going on in their lives. We have claims data, we have electronic health record data, uh, we have wearables, etc. And so somehow these things need to get together finally and provide like a more comprehensive view of disease. And then in parallel, there needs to be more advocacy really for promoting this type of solutions for reducing disparities across gender. And as data people, we're actually in a good place to be the people who do the advocacy. 
so is it fair to say that maybe one takeaway that we can give our listeners and the people in our lives is donate your health data as much as possible to research efforts because that's how we're gonna be able to help solve the world's problems, the world's health problems at least? I think it's donate your health data all the while pushing for infrastructures that allows you to have that data be ethically used. Noemi, thank you for this. This was amazing. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. El Haddad for talking to us today. And thank you, merci beaucoup, for listening. <laughs> We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee and Mark Robbins. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.